Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name is Jace. I'm on the teaching team here. Um, and really quick, I want to uh, just give a huge shout out and a thank you to all of the teachers who have been up on stage filling in for Marshall while he's gone. You guys can give them a round of applause. They've been doing a great job. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, if, if you're new here, our lead pastor, Marshall, he's been away on sabbatical, and so we've had, um, it's crazy, we just have like a really deep bench of um, gifted communicators that have stepped up to the plate, and I don't know if that's normal in a church to have more than like two or three people that teach regularly, but we've got like 45 people that can teach and have done such a good job, and it's so amazing to, to just watch and um, yeah, benefit from that, so Thanks again to all of you. When dad comes back, he'll be proud of you guys. Um, if you have a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 4. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's towards the back of the book. Um, the, this book is uh, like two pages long, so you shouldn't have a hard time finding it. Just kidding. Um, okay, so we're almost, can you guys hear me? Are we still good? Okay. Um, actually, I should pray. I should pray. God, thank you so much for this beautiful morning. I thank you for each person here. And um, I thank you for this ancient letter we get to read that has given wisdom to the church for 2,000 years. And what a privilege it is to uh, be in the audience with all of those churches for all those years. And I pray that your wisdom would be made known by your spirit um, and that you would be with my words and with each person's heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we're almost to the end of this book, uh, and you'll remember it's actually a letter from one guy named Paul, and he's writing it to his really good friends um, who are living in the ancient city of Philippi. Um, and remember that Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, and so it makes this letter unique among other uh, Pauline, the other Pauline literature that we have access to is that in a special way, it's like really showcasing um, this like familial brotherly love, this affection Paul has for his dear friends. So it's this letter written by one guy to a community of people who really has just become like family. And so he aches to be with them. He loves them deeply. And he wishes to encourage, encourage them by sending this letter. So in a couple weeks, I'm going to try my best to sort of recap the letter as a whole as we like wrap it all up before we um, go to the park for August. Uh, but for now, we're just going to pick up right in chapter 4, verse 1. Um, and I trust that if you're a little lost on context, you can go and listen to the podcast from previous episodes. So Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So Paul's first word here is therefore. Um, you guys are sick of hearing this, but it recalls the passage prior. So where he explores the transformation, uh, next slide, of our physical bodies and our citizenship in heaven. And if you missed um, Lynette's message, I just want to really encourage you to go back and listen. She did such a great job. Um, the point is that the, Christ the Christian has been given access to a hope which somehow like transcends the pain and evil of this world. And there is an anchor of destiny and purpose and joy and life which like sees the ship of this world through the storm um, until one day all things are made right and new again. This is basic 
uh, Christian theology. Therefore, Paul says, stand firm like God loves you. And gosh, he says, I love you too. (laughs) Um, You're my joy and crown. Um, This is such a great image, and it's not the only time Paul will employ it. So in 1 Thessalonians uh, 2.19, next slide, Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Jesus is the exact same word. So when I, when I preach, um, I have this weird tendency to latch onto a word or a phrase and then subconsciously use it too many times. Um, I never notice it in the moment. My wife always notices it. And usually on our drive home, she says, did you catch it? Whichever phrase you used like 35 times today. Um, and I'm always like, no, what was it? And then she tells me, and it's always so cringy and dumb what I do. One time I used the phrase, let's rock and roll, like five times. <laughs> like, let's, let's rock and roll. What year is it? I've never, I never used that phrase. One time in a sermon, though. No. Oh, man. One time I used the, the word utterly to describe. It was like my go-to adverb there. And then one time I just kept saying, you better believe it, like I was a host on Family Feud. Um, and every sermon, it's different and consistent. And like my crazy cat in the hat hands, I just like can't control it. I cannot control it. Um, and I don't know why I do it, uh, but it turns out Paul does something similar. I, at least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> Paul does it, so I'm going to do it. Um, you can see his like default vocabulary that he lo- He just like latches onto and he uses it over and over and over again. Um, though I'd argue it's not cringy and arbitrary. It's like really thoughtful. And it's well-worn for a good reason, like glory and joy and hope and crowns. (laughs) This is all like dense theological terminology um, that he spent many years thinking on. And then he employs it at all of the strategic moments throughout his letters as, as their pastor and apostle and friend. So Paul sees his investment into the Philippians as part of the Spirit's like grand work to mold and shape and prepare them for the day of Jesus, Jesus' return, when they, there with Paul, stand before the King of Kings. And somehow, them being there is Paul's crown. Um, And this is royal imagery. It's a king or a queen who wears a crown. Um, My daughter is in a really strong princess phase right now. I mean, it is really strong. And we are often talking about the crucial weight of the crown. (laughs) Um, This thing that goes on your head, it like signals authority, um, which is probably the last thing a (laughs) five-year-old needs to signal to me. But at this deep, like intuitive level, it's amazing how much she grasps that like when the crown goes on, it's like this stunning symbol of status and like radiance and position. Um, Like if you're wearing that thing, you're special. She knows it as she, like, places it on her head. It's elevated and glorious, and there's, there is. There's real authority there. But to that point, like, what kind of authority are we talking about here? In Philippians and in Thessalonians, we have Paul pictured as wearing a crown, and we as the readers are invited to contemplate the implications of a crown like that, like this kind of reign, this kind of kingdom, this kind of government and economy. This sort of royal figure bears a sort of glory and majesty um, and extends his rule. But how? By investing and serving and loving others. 
It's, it, and here's the thing. It's their maturity. It's their maturity, the flourishing of these other people, their growth as like loving, humble children of God that becomes a crown of glory for the head of the one who served them, who saw to that maturity. And so you can just see Jesus's ministry all over this thing, all over Paul's imagination. He sees the suffering servant, Jesus, as his king. So when, he, when Paul closes his eyes, he communes with the Lord, and Paul pictures this glorious, radiant king and this crown atop his head. But that crown was won by love, by giving up glory, by not considering equality with God something to be held on to, which we read in Philippians, um, by giving it up for the sake of the other. And so this sort of crown is what he imagines Jesus wearing, and then he's wearing, and then he imagines the Philippians ought to be wearing the same crown. He deeply desires for them to participate in this glory. So look at what happens in this next section. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Um, okay, so I know it's been a, a few weeks, but I want to recall the opener of the book, which we talked about during the first day in this series. So here's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So when we tackled this section on day one, we discussed the sometimes like indescribable joy that comes when you partner together with someone for a job, for a purpose. When we co-labor, we experience profound joy. Um, but here's the thing. Co-laboring and partnership um, can be a double-edged sword. In fact, it's almost guaranteed to be a double-edged sword where you get cut along the way um, as well. Turns out it can be full of conflict. And so here are two people, uh, Yodia and Syntyche, these women, who are partners, they're co-laborers of the gospel, and they're discovering that a life invested into this thing called the gospel, following King Jesus, teasing out the life of the church, all played out alongside one another. Turns out it's actually a bit of a baptism by fire and not in the Acts 2 sense. That's a dumb Bible joke for Jeff in the audience. <laughs> there's, um, there's, there's conflict between them, like real painful conflict like warranting a mention <laughs> um, in one of Paul's letters where every word is valuable. Um, so notice how Paul is like really pulling this theme all the way through, this idea of unity and co-laboring. It's been sprinkled throughout the letter, um, and here it's finding like real-world application in the lives of these real women as well as the larger church community. So also, like in chapter 2, we saw an emphasis on unity. You can go back and listen to those sermons. There was an emphasis on unity in chapter 2, but then it transitioned into an emphasis in chapter 3 on steadfastness, holding firm. And then here you see both coming together. If this is who you are, and if this is who Jesus is, then can we not build this bridge between you two? Can we figure this out? Let's build this bridge. Let's stand firm in the work ahead. So it should be stated outright that Paul... Um, by naming these women, is not singling them out as like the bad ones. Um, really, 
it's like the exact opposite. Like, what is his whole appeal in this letter? You're like my favorite ones. <laughs> Philippians is like, not, he doesn't use the word favorite, but he loves them. These are such close allies, brothers, and these two sisters in the work of ministry. By calling them out, this isn't singling them out. It's like, you're, you're the, you guys are the Philippians. Come on, you know? Um, I love you so much. He direct, and, and he, notice he directs their energy towards having the same mindset in the Lord, which we've talked about before. We've been establishing it throughout this series. It's the mind of Christ, which humbly becomes a servant for the sake of others. And he's asking these women, please come together on that basis. So um, a quick note, um, we do not know the details of uh, this conflict. Between the, this is all we have access to is this letter. So we don't know the details of the conflict between these women. But everything in this letter, like a thorough and good consideration of the context, points us in a generally clear direction that the issue is not a petty one. Um, whatever the issue is, it's, clear, it's clearly about the gospel work in Philippi, the work of ministry. That's what Paul's so passionate about. He's so passionate about the work of ministry and the work that they're doing together. So maybe this doesn't need to be said, and I thought I debated about pulling this out from the sermon, but then I remembered who was coming to our church. It's a lot of people from a lot of church hurt in their past. I don't know if you know this, but you're surrounded by a lot of people running from other churches. And the reason why they're leaving those and have found some sort of sanctuary here is because there was a lot of baggage and wounding happening in those other places, and we're all here recovering. There's a lot of like deep breathing on the sidelines in this room right now because of what you inherited. Um, and a lot of you are women that have come from church contexts where this is a number of, this is one of 45 passages used to talk about like this is like this is classic women, petty drama. And Paul as a man needs to step in and solve that. That's preached from the pulpit in, um, when we get to this passage all over America right now. Um, and if that's you, I just want to um, say I'm sorry that that's what you heard, <laughs> that this is just like a girl thing. Um, this is, context does not declare that at all. Context of the book is that this is the work of ministry. These are co-laborers with Paul. I'm going a little off script, but I just, I don't know who, maybe that's you in the room. This is not petty drama. This is the real work of the gospel. And so whatever it is that these women are disagreeing about, it has to do with philosophy of ministry, their passion to see the Lord's kingdom. And it has to do with the pastoral work within the city of Philippi. And so, like, it's clearly a real, like, boots-on-the-ground issue. That's why Paul feels the need to actually interject. He gets involved because it's the work of ministry that's at the center of that. Um, and any other interpretation, I think, is really rooted in some sort of male chauvinism that I certainly don't support as a reader of this passage, and I don't think our teaching team does either. And I just want to say that to you if you're recovering from some of those teachings. Um, Paul goes on to remind them, as well as a few others, that, hey, guys, all of your names, it's written in the book of life. Can we not forget that? Um, so the book of life, such a cool image to me. Um, we have evidence uh, for the ancient mind imagining the paradigm of their lives written in a book as early as Exodus, Exodus 32, where the author of Exodus records Yahweh is talking about those who sin against the covenant as having their names blotted out of that book. Um, and then that image is uh, picked up again and recycled and reiterated on in the poetry of the Old Testament. So you'll see, here's an example of it in the book of Psalms. 
Um, but then the image became especially popular in Jewish apocalyptic literature. So like Daniel chapter 12 or the book of Enoch, or um, it, it's like all over Revelation, this idea of this book with names written down. Um, and then Jesus goes on to say something like it in chapter 10 of uh, the Gospel of Luke, where he teaches the disciples to rejoice at the proper things. You remember this one? Rejoice at the proper things. Don't rejoice because you've got like controls over the spirits. I want you to rejoice because your name is written in heaven, it says, um, implication in that book. So our, our imaginations can sort of just like run away with the image a bit, and that's fine, but the point is that in all of these instances, what's the po what, is, what is the point? Paul wants to them to remember the thing we discussed last week, who they are in the Lord. There is a king, he's in charge, and you're in his kingdom. You belong to him. You have come to operate now under his good and loving governance. Your names have been recorded in the heavenly city where you're citizens. That's what he says in the previous chapter. So the implication is, since you're a citizen somewhere else, that comes with a code of conduct. That comes with a code of conduct. This isn't, that's his God's city. So we all wear crowns as citizens of that place. Well, what do those crowns look like? Just talked about it. And here's how we act. Here's what we do. Here's what happens when we take hold of the ways of life, the book of life. That's where your name is written. <clears throat> so after this, Paul moves into one of the most rehearsed passages in church history. You ready? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Let your um, reasonableness or gentleness or gentle, um, uh, like patience, some of your translations might have something like that, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, so you have what Gordon Fee calls the threefold expression of Jewish piety. <laughs> rejoicing, rejoicing uh, prayer, and thanksgiving. This threefold expression is found all over the Old Testament, um, but you see it especially throughout the Psalms, the poetry of which would have marked, and still does mark, the sort of liturgical worship expressions of God's people. The Psalms are like um, how we express our theology and religion. So um, you can see in the next slide, the righteous rejoice in the Lord. I just grabbed a couple examples here. They come before him with thanksgiving to pray in his sanctuary. So it's just, when Paul gives you this threefold thing, he's just quoting the Psalms in a paragraph. Could, have you read 150 of them? This is what they're all about, <laughs> you know? So this is classic. God's people are to be marked by this, by this threefold expression. And it's almost as if we're able to hold up these three things as health indicators for the community. Are we people who are rejoicing, uh, giving thanks, and praying? How are we doing, <laughs> you know? Um, and unless I'm just so naive, I would just like to say this community is, feels so healthy to me in that regard. Um, thank you for being people that pray and give thanks and rejoice with me. <clears throat> What's also interesting, though, is that Paul is careful to note, this is great, what this looks like from the outside or what it ought to look like. So, um, so read closely here. He says, um, let your reasonableness, again, this word is tricky, but it, it's like gentleness or this ability to remain gentle 
while you're patient or reasonable while you're waiting or something. Let your reasonableness or gentleness or gentle forbearance be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. So in other words, we're to be this people that rejoice and give thanks and they pray because our lives are built on this confidence of the Lord's presence. He's at hand, unified in this hope of what's to come, where our citizenship is, all of that, all of that, the truth of the gospel. But to the outside world, next slide, it ought to come across as reasonableness, like gentleness. We don't, in other words, we don't rejoice and pray and give thanks anxiously, like we're trying to manipulate God or like we're trying to coerce someone else into doing something our way or we're trying to force something to happen. We're gentle. We're incredibly patient people because the Lord is at hand. We trust in his authority. So there is deep in my soul, you guys, um, a solidifying conviction in me. It takes on more solid ground every day that our ability to be quiet and gentle and patient with a Christ-like peace is this fruit of the Spirit, an ability worked out in us that's directly connected to how we imagine God. And... um, In other words, our gentleness is directly connected to our theology. I am convinced. And let me explain to you what I mean. Less than a year ago, um, I was sitting across from my therapist, and we had gotten to one of those moments where we were both aware that he had cracked open a door to a forbidden room in my heart. Um, Maybe some of you have had this experience, not with a therapist, but with a close friend or with a spouse or something. It's like, oh, Mm-mm. don't touch that. And it was so forbidden, so ugly, so dark, so overgrown with thorns and weeds that I had forgotten it was even there. But through really painfully honest conversation and reflection for months, he had found his way there and he asked the right questions, ultimately saying when we got there, can we go in? Can we go in there? Are you willing to crack that open with me? Um, and we did. I feel incredibly safe with him. He's like earned that trust in my life. And I gave him access to that part of me. And we began exploring the murky truth of my life behind the forbidden door. And you know what? It was so terrifying. It was so scary. I was shaking and I was crying and I was feeling very defensive. And um, you know what my therapist was doing? He was sitting peacefully opposite me And um, there he was with his mug of water that he has every single session in his hand. (laughs) He drinks water out of a mug. Like, he's so cool the way he just, like, holds it like that. (laughs) I don't know why he does it. I feel like I never drink water out of a mug. But he does it every week. And his voice was so calm. His face lined with, like, all of, lined in all the right places that affirmed to me he had compassion. And he was present and he was actively listening, but not so active to try to like fix the problems immediately. I mean, seriously, such a delicate balance he was striking. Um, and uh, it wasn't, I wasn't getting spooked. And he, I, I get spooked easily, and he was not spooking me. Um, and he was just so focused and attentive without being aggressive or overstepping. He was unbelievably gentle, even as he invited me into a very, the very aggressive experience of articulating pain which is, can sometimes be very visceral to do, you know? He was asking me to tell him the truth about how I was feeling about myself and the world and God's role in all of it. 
And here's the part I want to focus on. To him and to him alone, I unleashed all my unbridled, like unfiltered thoughts on God. I just bleh, started getting it out. And I started to really talk about my fears. And I expressed all my pain and my frustrations and all the expectations I felt and all the ways I was going to like let everyone down and, and all the ways I imagined God was mad or disappointed at me or whatever. And I just let it all out. And there was this very real feeling of, oh, shoot, God's going to hear this and be mad at me. <laughs> like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a curse upon myself if I actually am really honest about what I hate about God or the Bible or church or whatever. Yikes, do you feel it? I feel it now of like, whoa, is honesty like that actually acceptable? But something began to happen in the room immediately. Once it was out there on the table between my therapist and me, and there he sat opposite me, still gentle and patient and compassionate, I was almost immediately overwhelmed with a sensation that I had not felt in a long time. If I was unable to offend my therapist to the point of discarding me and kicking me out of his office, like, might I be able to conceive of God in such a way where he, too, was just as kind and generous towards me? What if God was extending his compassion to me through the eyes and body language of this human right in front of me? And so let me say it another way. That day, <laughs> I felt like I was staring at God for who he was, the biggest, most generous, kind, loving, compassionate, gentle person that was unbothered by the crap in my life. And I told my therapist, this is what I said to my therapist. I said, I feel like here in this room, God is the biggest he's ever been in my life. He's so freaking powerful in this room, like cosmically powerful. The king, he's like king of the universe status in this room. And I've never, even more than I felt that like in church, if I'm honest with you guys, like he's so big in this room, well, why? Because here, even as I let him into this mess and anxiety, I sense through you, my therapist, like tranquility, real tranquility, a gentleness, a calmness. I thought I would disturb it or bother it or like upset it or offend it. I thought I would warrant your wrath or your judgment or your punishment. But instead, all I'm getting from you is like warmth, generosity, embrace, love, gentleness. That's all I keep getting from you. Be mad at me, dang it. But here you are, you sit across from me, and you are unconcerned. You still hold love for me, and you desire to see me grow and mature. You've affirmed that to me for weeks now as we've built trust. But you're, not, you're somehow not making me feel like I have to do all of that overnight. You know what I mean? Um, right now, all at once, that's overwhelming. And so you're saying, it's okay. Somehow you, my therapist, are unbothered and so not worried about what it's going to look like to work through this thoroughly, because thoroughly is the only way forward if you actually want real healing. It could take 10 years, and you're not anxious about it. How big is your God, dear therapist, that you could listen to me and not have your faith shaken or be thrown into doubt or fear yourself because of all of my words? And I, here's the thing, you guys. I have... Um, I want to say this as respectfully, we're all brothers and sisters here. There have been moments where like, I, I don't trust that the person across from me in a normal church setting is capable of being that calm 
if I raise a concern or a doubt or a fear. I'm afraid I'm going to like upset this person or that person or shake their faith or cause this person to stumble. You know what I mean? Not everyone is a safe space. And so there's a lot of what happens in the church is there's a lot of just like holding it in and being scared. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's just like, it's a culture that has to be like worked through thoroughly. And Paul is adamant about seeing it happen. And so that's when I realized that the Spirit's work in my life to cultivate that same sort of like gentleness and tranquility, that patient forbearance towards the mess of others, is directly connected to my theology. Is my imagination cultivated by the God of the Bible who created the universe, who sent Jesus to rescue and unite this whole beautiful thing? That God, like is he big enough to not be in a hurry in my life and love me and listen to me that I might do the same? Or is the God who occupies my imagination a stressed out God, like disappointed, anxious to see all of his kids like buzzing with activity or like worker bees, always on task, or he's like going to be mad? <laughs> you know, it's like, like only a really impatient, immature, small God behaves like that to me. Only a, here's the kicker, only a God created in my image behaves like that to me. You with me? And so you all are with me where we create these idols after our image and all of our, our woundings and baggages. And then we call them God. And then we're mad. And then we're freaked out about him. It's just like, it's it's so dysfunctional. And Paul says, let me write a letter to encourage you about who Jesus actually is. Okay. And and it's like, tell me this doesn't have like real time application on like me as a dad, as a parent. So I started thinking about my kids and how impatient I am with them, how angry I can get, how anxious I get about their behavior. And like, let me tell you, toddlers in public make you so anxious about their behavior. Just like, oh my gosh, you're reflecting. This isn't how we act at home. Why are you doing this right now? You know what I mean? It's just crazy. And so you just feel like uh, you, you parent out of a malnourished theology. But when I quiet myself and I sense God's like just gentle patience with me, I feel the spirit opening up my heart. I breathe in the truth, and I feel the abundance of the kingdom unfolding in my life. And I find myself able to hold my calm. I can hold the calm, gentle, peaceful ground, even as my child screams at me. Um, Because, man, like my heart is filled not with this defiant spirit that wants to try to stop the crying, control the behavior, Um, but it's it's a gentle one that's able to peacefully give them the space to melt down with no judgment, knowing that they're feeling really unstable, and so they require a stable parent. They, they're the toddler. They're feeling unstable. I'm the parent. I know, what the, I know that like at the end of the day, they're going to go to bed and everything's going to be okay, and like I can be stable. You can be unstable. You're four. Um, even, but man, how relatable is this? Like, I need to know that God is like that for me. He's stable, you guys. <laughs> Because, and I'm feeling like a toddler right now. I'm feeling really crazy. That's how, you know, I was in my therapist's office. Um, and so, um, he, he, uh, here's the thing. It's not just kids that behave like this. Like, guess what? Grown-ups struggle with not getting what they want, too. Have you lived a day on planet Earth? They struggle, and then they divide, especially churchy grown-ups. And then they divide, and then they throw rocks at each other. Doctrinal rocks, usually. And they, um, they don't sense the other person giving them sp- space to express that without feeling judged. 
And so they, they start to panic. Um, and we all just start acting like we're four, is usually what happens. But Paul is saying in one way or another what, what my therapist said to me in one way or another. Hey, God's big in this room. He's really big in here. You can express that, and we can work through that one step at a time because we've got our gaze fixed on the larger project at hand. The love of God in Christ, seen in the gospel, uniting heaven and earth, making all things new, one forbidden door of the heart at a time. And so this is what, <laughs> this is what Paul reminds Yodia and Syntyche. Hey, you guys are really working through a conflict. This is a big deal. That's okay. But I would remind you of the grand stability and unity and sovereignty of Jesus. He's able to hold all of this together, even as he holds your hearts in what you're both so passionate about right now. <clears throat> uh, speaking of the heart, Paul says, as you pray and present all of this to God, and I assume when Paul talks of praying, he, there is like a real implied honesty there. Paul says, uh, rejoice in the Lord always, this, this one. Okay, and then at the end of that, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, so in the, most of you know this, and actually we kind of relate to this anyway. In the Hebrew worldview, the heart is the center of the being, um, and out of it flows all of life. You can see this all over in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The, that, um, the, but the prayers that God's shalom, like his wholeness, his completeness, will be this like perfect wall around the center of our lives. That because of who he is, um, one will be kept from thoughts and distress that keeps one from that like trusting prayer. And so again, note that the location of that shalom, that peace, is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Somehow it's the story of the king and what he's done and his work that provides for us this wall of peace. This is crucial for the Christian to wrap his or her mind around when it comes to conflict and relational dynamics within the community. The larger picture of who we are, citizens of heaven, sons and daughters of God, royal priests in the kingdom, that larger picture must inform uh, us as we work through the nitty-gritty messes of our lives. Um, and again, so many of you have had to leave churches because someone's crown was their ego rather than like the humble service of brothers and sisters in the community. Or that pastor wore a crown of whatever, certain theological doctrines. Um, and there was this underbelly of anxiety beneath it all where if we didn't hold to that with this iron grip, if we didn't enforce it with like militant zeal, if we didn't do this in this way by this time, then what? Then God's kingdom wouldn't advance or then God's will wouldn't be done or... Like, you fill in the blank. You all have your own experiences. I know I have mine. But that sort of ministry, that's not marked by rejoicing, thanksgiving, and prayer. And it certainly isn't gentle. And it's certainly not marked by hearts that are just totally guarded by the peace of God in Christ. You know what I mean? No, it's like riddled with anxiety. Church culture like this has choked so many of you. Um, and it's scared away prodigals. And it's kept away the hurt and the broken. But here we see a gospel where our hearts, our hearts are guarded. They're just guarded by the peace of God. God's perfect shalom. It's just a fortress for you. Like, period. Which means, um, uh, and actually, um, 
I can, I'll invite you all to stand. I'll close here, and I invite the ministry team to come forward. Um, if someone wants to um, maybe come up here for music, and um, Jeff and Linda, you want to come up, and the prayer team come up. I'm just going to close here with, with this little, um, just, just a conclusion here. But we're here at the end. Um, and what I want to, what I want to remind us is, um, I hope, <laughs> after reading a book like Philippians, I hope we're able to remind ourselves that we need not inject unnecessary anxiety and fear into the room because we know that God is working all things out by his spirit. So what's our role? Here, we rejoice and we give thanks and we pray. And so this is our threefold center. Here we trust in Jesus, that God is big enough um, and gracious enough for you to all bring whatever you need to bring, um, all of yourself to the table. And you say, hey, here's what I got. It's a lot. I'm a disaster. Um, but it's the truth behind that hidden door of your heart. Um, and I'm interested in working through it one step at a time. Um, I, I also want to just say, sometimes as people that love to pray, we want, I love to pray for people. What I want is for everyone to do that with me. Here, like, let me take you right into the vulnerable place and let's pray. Um, but you know how long it took me to get to that place with one person? <laughs> you know, it's just like it took months. And so I just want to release the expectations in the room. Like you're not going to go, some of you might not enter into like dense therapy sessions with your prayer person. That's actually not what you should be doing at all. You should be going there to hear from the Holy Spirit. You with me? God, let God minister to you. But a lot of you are carrying anxiety in those little doors, of, locked behind doors of your hearts. And I want you to trust that God is big enough to get in there. And so when you ask for prayer, you're just saying, hey, will you just like pray that that door opens up and the spirit comes in to do that thing? And it's not, you don't have to give this person in front of you every, everything. You don't have to be scared of that. Um, so I, I sense, we all sense that there's work that needs to be done in that area. But we also recognize we're on holy ground in that area. We're not trying to force something. We trust God. Um, but if you feel like the Spirit is saying, hey, maybe open that up and just let someone ask for the Spirit to come right there, you can trust that we are safe. This is a safe place to just go slowly in that regard. Um, so, Jeff and I want to bring it up. We're going to transition into that time.